You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey y'all, it's Bridget here. I have the honor of chatting with Tamika Hall and Colin Appiah, the authors of Black Mixolence, a comprehensive guide to black mixology. Tamika Hall is an author, a mom, a freelance writer, and content strategy manager. She has created editorial content and marketing strategies for Adidas, The Vitamin Shop, Mass Appeal, The Examiner, and many more. She wrote branded content for a variety of brands, including Bacardi, Maker's Mark, PepsiCo, and Anheuser-Busch. Tamika co-created the curriculum for Yellow Bricks Hospitality and Tourism Industry Essentials online course with NYU's Jonathan Tisch Center of Hospitality and was the winner of the 2021 Budweiser Hashtag Sports Award for Black Storytelling, honoring her work on a pilot program for the Sneaker Essentials K-12 Initiative. Colin is one of the spirits industry's most well-known and liked pioneers and trendsetters. He has been making waves and setting industry standards since he first got his start in the industry over three decades ago. Born in Ghana and raised in the UK, Colin began his path as the original cocktail guides for BBC's The Good Food Show. Colin moved to the US in 2004 as a partner of a premium vodka brand and was responsible for all aspects of the business. In his current role, Colin is responsible for fostering brand advocacy for the Bacardi USA brand portfolio, building brand loyalty, and elevating the bartending community through brand-focused educational programming, events, and seminars. He was recognized as the best brand ambassador in the USA in 2016. His expertise and spirits knowledge has been featured in Imbibe Magazine, Complex, WSJ, Time, and Cocktail Lovers Magazine, just to name a few. Together, Tamika and Colin authored the book, Black Mixolence, a comprehensive guide to Black mixology. They share their journey writing this book, stories behind notable Black mixologists, favorite recipes, and so much more. So grab yourself your favorite cocktail, sit back, and enjoy the show. And Colin, welcome to Served Up. It is a great pleasure to have you on today's show. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Bridget. Been looking forward to this for ages. Yes. Tamika, let's start off with you. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your background in the beverage industry? What really drew you to this industry and what has your career looked like? So basically, I was a freelance writer for quite some time and I got looped into branded content. So I started covering spirits brands and cocktails and doing food and drink reviews. And I really kind of moved away from food and kind of just gravitated towards drink for obvious reasons. So 
I think that's really where I, the root of why I like to work with spirits and write about spirits, because I think it's interesting to look at it from a brand perspective versus a, what you really like perspective versus a personal perspective. Cause I think it's three different things. And so that's what drew me to spirits. Do you have a favorite? I honestly, I feel like it depends on the mood. If I had a great day at work and it's a celebratory day, it's a good bottle of wine. If it was a shit day at work, I'm definitely coming for tequila. And I think <laughs> tequila and rum, those two, like if it's one of those days, it's a neat rum or a neat even whiskey or just tequila in whatever beverage is in the fridge. Um, yeah, that's a Colin good is place. the mixologist, so I leave him to the cocktails. <laughs> I'm very much a pourer, and I'll I can write you to town about what I poured, but I can't mix a drink for crap. Oh, <laughs> oh come on! The lessons are coming on. You're gonna be good. You literally wrote the book about it. <laughs> I, think. Yeah. I did. I did. I I I have to say I have gotten better following the recipes because they're actually written and designed in such a way that anyone can make it and you really look like you're a mixologist so shout out to Colin for having me out here really looking like I work behind the bar because his cocktails allow for that the recipes are easy to follow and even better because after you do it you're proud of your work and you garnish it so lovely and it looks like you literally work I could work in a bar I couldn't but I love yeah yeah Mm -hmm. well Colin let me ask you um the same question You know, um, what really drew you to the hospitality industry? And can you tell the listeners a bit about your career? Oh, my goodness. How long have you got? Okay, give us the (laughs) give us a short version. Yes. Okay. Okay. fine. Okay. uh, By the black excellence and you'll see and read exactly how I'm going into the industry. But the funny thing about the industry is I swore I'd never be a bartender. I used to work as a waiter through college and university, and I used to make so much money and have so much fun. And I was on the floor and I was with people. Then I stepped behind a bar when I ran out of money when I was in uh, Greece. And I literally fell in love with it because I could, I wasn't creating anything apart from, okay, let me step back. I was creating moments when I was on the floor, but I wasn't creating anything physical to give to people so and tangible so from behind the bar i was able to create not just moments but then this physical thing that people could imbibe and i could get instant reaction and interesting and instant feedback and i love the way that uh you could create moments from behind the bar through these liquids that were uh created uh some many moons ago and some very, very recent history. And I really fell in love when I was asked by the owner of the bar that I was working in when I was a barback. I started off as a barback, like every good bartender, you know that, Bridget. Um, I started off as a barback, and I used to polish bottles. One day he walked into, uh, the owner walked into a bar, I was in Greece at the time, and he said, "Uh, Colin, where's that bottle from? And it was actually a bottle of uh, Benedictine. and uh, I looked at it and I said, uh, well, it's from behind, it was from like the truck. I picked it up from the truck and I put it into the stock room and he was like, ah, you think you're funny? He said, polish all the bottles again. And we had a really long bar with like over 300 bottles. Got Went back behind the bar, started polishing all the bottles again, picked up the bottle of Benedictine. And the story of Benedictine is 
seared in my memory. Uh, 27 herbs and spices made by Benedictine monks. It was 1510 was the original recipe. And 1796 uh, was the uh, second recipe when it was introduced to uh, the US market and in classic cocktails. Um, and the funny thing was I started reading all the bottles and realized that, oh, listen, this is, uh, this is a really interesting space to be in. We cross generations of civilizations, births, deaths, marriages, wars, this, that, the other. That was it. I was hooked. And then also the interaction with people and being able to create something and create special moments, something tangible. I uh, was absolutely hooked. Came back to London after my stint in Greece for about three, after three years. And then uh, we set up a company uh, called London Academy of, of Bartending with my dear friend Douglas. God bless his soul. We lost him um, uh, the year before last. He created a porn star martini, uh, which is world famous worldwide. And uh, you, obviously, Bridget, you got to actually do your letters to a young bartender with him as well, didn't you? I did. He was such a lovely gentleman. My goodness. It was such an honor to be sitting on a stage next to him. Yeah, he was absolutely amazing. And then we set up uh, London Academy of Bartending, which morphed into the lab. And the rest is history. We had a bunch of amazing people that worked with us. Um, I worked with Jamie Oliver. I did a cocktail show, the first cocktail show in 2006 on the Discovery Travel and Living channel. If you get the opportunity, YouTube it. You can see a little piece of it. You YouTube Cocktail King's Mojito. There's a little segment of Colin Appiah, 2006, making cocktails on a TV show. And it was with a dear friend of mine and my brother from another mother, Dmitry Lazinska. And yeah, I got uh, dragged to the US kicking and screaming by my wife. Um, but no, I love it here. It's fun. Um, it's very different to... Uh, London in some ways, but it's similar. And yeah, so I live here in London and I work on advocacy with Bacardi Brands now. It's great. Oh, I forgot to also wish you a very happy Black History Month. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. We celebrate Black History here at Served Up, not just this month, but every damn day. So well, it's not just this month, people. It's not just this month. That's it right. Many months. It's all year. All year long yes but thank you for that shout out absolutely and you're very humble you know you've had such a dynamic career in the beverage industry through your work through tales of the cocktail let's go ahead and jump right back into your book because your book is really one of the first of its kind uh you know and it's an important book and I really love the recipes in it and the stories, and I can't wait to really dive deep into it. So let's talk a bit about Black Mixolence. And let's start with you, Tamika, and talk about what was it like for you researching the stories, writing the stories with Colin, and really bringing this book to life? Um, so I think the most interesting part about researching these stories were trying to find consistency in some of the content that we that was found. So if you know, a lot of our history from back in those early days were not documented because we weren't allowed to read, right? We shared stories a lot, word of mouth. So in my mind, a lot of these things are happening because people were telling the stories as, you know, time progressed. And so people then started documenting them, but by trying to find synergy in some of the content that we were reading, but also just 
finding out that there were so many things that we did that were not discussed and are just now being like brought to light. It's just weird that it's happening now and it hasn't been conversation prior to like even learning about a badass woman in prohibition. Like how come no one was talking about her before? Like no one was talking about Birdie Brown. I totally would have been Birdie Brown for Halloween at some point and, you know, recreated the whole moonshot, you know, the whole situation. And it's just crazy that we we stumble upon these things by mistake. You know, you're reading or looking for something else and you're like, wait, what's this? And then it kind of opens up a rabbit hole and you start digging, looking for other things. And that's really how this all started. I was like, okay, so we're going to feature Black mixologists. That's great. But what's the meat and potatoes of featuring the Black mixologists? And then I was like, you know, there has to be some stuff that we did, you know, back then that we could potentially talk about. And that's really what kind of opened Pandora's box. And the book could be, you know, inches thick with history of things that we did. But I think we kept it very, I don't want to say basic because that's underwriting it, but we kept it so that people would learn a little and then be interested to go and learn more on their own or potentially initiating the process to write their own books. And that would give us a plethora of you know, research documents that other people can look at too. So um, yeah, it's just interesting when you, when you pull one string, it's like unraveling a sweater, you pull one string and then you just continue pulling. And then by then you have a pile of yarn and you're like, shit, that's a lot of information. Yeah. So um, that's how it started. Yeah. yeah. The erasure of black, of black history and, uh, and black mixologists in cocktail culture is uh, evident to see. I mean, when I first started bartending uh, back in, oh, I'm going to date myself now. But in the 90s, uh, when I started bartending in the 90s, we were never told about Tom Bullock, who wrote The Ideal Bartender in 1917. But now everyone knows about Tom Bullock. We mm-hmm. never heard of Shakespeare Alexander. We never heard of stories of John Dabney. And it's only now that we're really hearing and understanding uh, those stories. Uh, as the saying goes, you know, truth will always rise um, to the top and will always surface. But I really believe that a lot of the classic cocktails that we attribute to bartenders of now are cocktails that were created on plantations uh, way back in yesteryear. And because we couldn't write our histories. They were co-opted by white bartenders and they were, they were the ones who wrote the history. Those same reporters documented the history. So he who writes the history owns the narrative. So we could control that narrative. Uh, Now we're in a space where we can uh, control our own destinies and we can push for that. I challenge uh, constantly, all the bartenders that I meet. And, you know, Bridget, you know a few of them, a lot of the prominent um, black mixologists that we see. Um, I challenge them all to write uh, their own cocktail books and to tell their own stories and really go out of their way to uh, highlight and showcase what got them to where they are and to sh- highlight and showcase their difference in their diversity. Because being black as well is not um, a monolith. We're from all over the continent. All, sorry, all over the globe. And we bring a lot of our diverse um, life experiences to bear. Even when I was creating these cocktails personally, 
I looked at a lot of ingredients that were available in a lot of African-American, uh, Caribbean and Afro-Latina and African, you know, pantries. Their cocktails, there's, there's one cocktail in the book, uh, for example, which is uh, basically like a Guinness punch. Everyone talks about coquito, coquito, coquito. But, you know, in the Caribbean, uh, you go to Jamaica, when it's that season, everyone's drinking a Guinness punch, which is similar. Uh, you just don't have to heat anything up. It's just much easier to make. <laughs> and, you know, there's cocktails as well across from uh, the continent in Ghana, uh, the Chapman cocktail, which is uh, basically a, a cocktail of a mix of different um, uh, sparkling sodas, but uh, it's a cocktail all the same, and it's a trend and a tradition that's been used across the continent. Um, we kind of um, we brought it into the book and changed it um, around a bit. But without being said and without hogging the uh, microphone for too long, uh, this is really an opportunity to um, showcase and highlight Black mixologists and hear their stories. There's a ton of um, mixologists that we showcase and highlight in the book. And as I said, this is a great springboard for others to go out there and do the research and write their own stories. That's the other thing I was going to add. I think while it's great that the book is written, I like to, I'll talk about the book and I'll say, yes, it's the book and the stories and the history and it's great, but here's the mixologist. Here's what mixologists can do. Let the mixologist tell their story. It creates a platform on a variety of different levels because if they have a business, go visit the business, go and see what's happening there. If you know they're working at a bar, go buy their cocktails or they have a business, support the business. It's really just to shed light and allow the book to act as a platform so that these mixologists too can, you know, promote themselves and their stories and their talents. Because that's really what we want to happen. Yeah, it's really timely as well, Bridget, in that uh, the book has actually come at a time where we just come out of a global pandemic. Um, everyone had the time, uh, that time as well, to become... Oh, or not become, but a lot of people had the opportunity to become socially aware of uh, the landscape of what history had painted uh, the world to be. And we all realized that maybe there were some stories that weren't quite correct. Now, uh, with uh, the book, a lot of Black mixologists are realizing that, oh, listen, uh, we have actually got a rich um, culture of cocktail heritage that we need and we can uh, build upon and that we can go ahead and grow our platform. Um, Tom Bullock's book coming out in 1917, there wasn't another black mixologist book until Douglas Anchor brought out, um, yeah, 2004, Douglas brought out Shaken and Stirred, which is insane. I mean, we look at all the rum books. Wild. Yeah, where do you think a lot of the rums made? A lot of rums made... Caribbean, Latin America, this and mm-hmm. the other. You don't see many black authors of rum books, which blows my. It's not because they don't know how to write; it's because they don't have a, they don't have the access and the means, and they haven't had the access and the means in the past. And now with things like podcasts and being able to self-publish and um, the internet, uh, we have the opportunity to really get our work out there and really be heard and really be seen. And we should take advantage of that. I think yeah. people don't realize that there's such outlet. And the don't get don't get it wrong. The publishing industry reminds me a lot of the music industry as it's very intimidating. 
Because if you don't know people that are going to steer you in the right direction, you're going to get a shitty deal. You're going to get a trash publisher. And at the end of the day, it's better to probably self-publish because then you can just do it as you want while you may not get the same royalties or promotion. I mean, we're in a place now where like independent record labels, independent publishers and self-publishing is the best way to go because you can get the most bang for your buck and you can promote yourself as you see fit and collect all the money versus paying someone else. So it's super important to remind people that there's access. And if you really want to write a book, write the book, write the book, write a book. Yeah. Write the book. Absolutely. I had that experience personally. Um, I had a publisher and then I self-published my last book because I it felt like I had more freedom to put down on paper what I wanted to say and the stories that I wanted to tell in a very special mm-hmm. way. So mm-hmm. I, I should have pulled out your book to show it to you. Ah! <laughs> you well, did sign it for me once. I did. I did. Well, I would love to uh, flip it back to you, Colin. And yeah. You know, if you could tell the listeners a bit about what you discovered um, with the early, you know, black mixologists and what their day might have looked like and the cocktails that they were creating and the environment, right, that they were working in. Yeah, the um, what, I, what I discovered in researching uh, black mixologists, they were people asked me, uh, Colin, when would you when in history would you like to be alive? And I'm like, right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right now is the best time for being black is for me, it's like right now. But they came up against so much adversity uh, to the point of you wouldn't even be able to imagine having to create or make cocktails to buy yourself out of free. That's what some of the mixologists did. Um, they created and made mint juleps to buy their freedoms. Their stories, we've documented them in the book. Um, people like Cato Alexander, who uh, built uh, his bar here, his bars here in New York. Uh, he was constantly attacked by other white bar owners and white bar patrons for opening his bar and trying to uh, make a living from the industry. I mean, hey, stuff like that still happens today, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but it was, they were up against so much more adversity. But then in that adversity, they found some form of kinship in that we discovered as well that um, at the Howard Theatre, uh, there was a, a black mixologist uh, club um, that was created to really have a safe space for black mixologists to get together and share ideas. And it's interesting because we actually threw an event um, when the Howard Theatre reopened and we uh, traced... Well, I say we. I got uh, one Dave Andrews to do it. Uh, <laughs> he basically traced uh, Tom Bullock's uh, relatives, and we brought one of their relatives. Uh, we invited them to uh, the event, and we gave them a lifetime award uh, for Tom Bullock for his services to the cocktail. That's, in, that's incredible. Yeah, because that book was the bookend of the last golden era of cocktails. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely. Amazing. You know, when we talk about bartenders early on, um, we don't talk a whole lot about female bartenders, black, white, any race, right? Um, but would love to talk a, more about what you learned about the black female mixologist and where she started and where she is today. So for me, I think 
like I mentioned before, the story of Bertie Brown was I had no idea that she was such a fixture during the era of prohibition. And in true Black woman fashion, she was a multitasker. She was doing quite a few things at a time. And, um, you know, her welcoming people into her bread and breakfast, people traveling across from wherever they were coming from to visit her. And of course, indulging her moonshine was really a surprise to me because I had no idea. I mean, thinking about how many spirits events I've covered, how many things I've went to, I could always count on one hand how many Black mixologists there were, but almost on no hands how many Black women there were. So it was interesting to see that dynamic. And she was there. I've never seen more than maybe five through my, you know, covering Spirit's career. And then to unopen this whole sector where there are Black women mixologists that are doing their thing, like Tiffany, like Frankie Marshall, like it's crazy to know that all this is happening. And what's crazy is that I've been to Dead Rabbit before. And I do remember seeing Frankie before, even like like a few years ago when I used to go with my friends. And thinking about that, I was like, wow, there really aren't a lot of Black women that are in, that are being spot, in the spotlight of the, in the industry either. So it was important to find women that are planting their feet in the industry and really making ways and, and to highlight them as well. So we have Camille, we have Frankie, we have Potent Pores, Kim, who is one of the first women to have like a mobile bar business from where she's from. And so there's a lot of things happening with women too, not just men. And in true woman fashion, we've been doing our thing for quite some time, but just like the men swept under the rug, not talked about. And so bringing that to light was super important too. Yeah, the church actually bizarrely played a big part in um, cocktail communities and cocktail culture in that the women and men as well would provide catering services uh, for um, outings. And during those uh, outings, they would make, apart from providing food, they would make uh, cocktails. And a lot of these mobile cocktail or uh, food uh, catering services uh, were run by women and they were church-based. So the church played a big part in the community of um, women uh, coming to own their own businesses. And if you go to places like New Orleans, uh, you find a lot of women that have owned their own bars for many years. And it's it's great to see that we've come, we're in a modern era now and you're seeing a lot more um, black mixologists and black female owners of bars and restaurants. Um, I work with groups um, all over the country and I try to knit them all together to build some kind of kinship because I believe that it's really important to see other people that look like you, walk like you and talk like you. Representation matters. So it's everything. It it's is. Everything. So um, in everything we do, we always try to, you know, uh, connect and bring people up and bring people through. Yeah, that's a beautiful yeah. thing, right? You're yeah. really taking um, your book, your philosophy, your careers and creating um, a, a network, it sounds like. Mm. that's oh, important yeah. to have yeah that's no cool. that's i think yeah we can't just write the book and and leave it at that we have to bring the people that are written that that are featured in the book to the fold 
try to create a community there so that we have each other. But even as we move around and, and, you know, do events and talks and however we decide to position the book, I think it's important to bring everyone who's relative to the industry and can relate to the content into the fold. 100%. I want to bring it back to the cocktails because your book has some delicious, 70 delicious cocktails. That's a lot of cocktails, folks. A lot of drinking. Something for everyone in this book. So, you know, Colin, you did mention just a little bit about the cocktails, but what I want to ask you is what are some of the more unique ingredients throughout this book? Well, I mean, there's uh, one of the most unique ingredients, which a lot of people don't use um, in the book is uh, sorrel. That's, That's an ingredient that I've, myself and many people in Afro, Caribbean and African, African African-American culture. Uh, We've had and used that in cocktails for millennia. And it's it's something that um, we all used to drink because it had health benefits, Um, but now it's made its way into cocktails. Even Jackie Summer uh, created his uh, Sorrel, uh, which is really gaining uh, traction. And I'm glad that he came out and did it because it's, Shedding the light on sorrel, which is a non-alcoholic uh, derivative of that, bringing people's attention, as I said, to something like the Guinness Punch, which is um, which is a which is a different cocktail to a coquito, um, but similar, um, and it's drank around the same time um, of year as well. Um, in Jamaica, Colin even put avocado in a cocktail. I did put avocado, but you know, I've been I've always <laughs> liked avocado. Yeah, I liked avocado. Avocado is is great in a cocktail. I mean, it's basically a, um, a variation on a uh, pina colada, which I, I love pina coladas. I mean, that always takes me to being on a beach or lying on a sand lounger and, or floating in someone's pool drinking a pina colada. It's always happy. But uh, some of the ingredients um, that you uh, find in a book that maybe you haven't uh, used before as well is tamarind. I mean, tamarind is an ingredient that we've been using for ever. I remember I used to, back in the days at Townhouse, we used tamarind uh, in a cocktail, and it was absolutely delicious, but people didn't actually know what tamarind was at the time. I always have tamarind in the house. Um, I eat it. If I feel snackish, I'll eat it. Dates as well. People don't eat a lot of dates, but we use that in cocktails. We use it in jams and purees and so on as well, but there's um, there are lots of there's lots of ingredients in there in the book. One of my favorites. There's a cocktail called um, Empire of the Sun, um, and I use turmeric uh, syrup. And turmeric isn't used a lot. I love saffron in cocktails. Yeah, there's there's so many uh, things in uh, the cocktail pantry that I like to use in cocktails, which uh, I think because of uh, my background and because I really appreciate. Uh, different flavors. Yeah, I put them all in there. Also, I spent uh, time speaking to uh, mums and chefs, people who cook. And, you know, they gave me some inspirations, uh, um, ingredient combinations that we put in uh, the book. Did you just say mums? That's amazing. My mum and a couple of the aunties mm-hmm. about about the cocktails and I remember going back home there's one um 
there's one cocktail which is a bit like a dark and stormy, which is the Lulu Collins. And I remember uh, making it for my mum as well. I originally made it as a celebration for Louisa and I. Um, and I remember making it for my mum. And she said, oh, yeah, this would be, this is what I used to, I used to give you all of this. She used to give us ginger. I used to give you all of this when you guys were young, when you weren't feeling well. It, you know, you'd rub the rum on the head to let the spirits uh, evaporate. And then, you know, you'd eat ginger and drink ginger. That was a real thing. And a little bit of, you know, the, that pepper, Scotch bonnet. Boom. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny because Carl Franz now has that ingredient, uh, those ingredients in his classic ginger beer, which is amazing. Uncle Waithley's. Yeah. And the all things that we all have in some ways come in contact with in our um in our uh, history, you know. So you have found like a common thread, you know, as you're exploring black mixology, oh, oh. as you're, you know, exploring this beautiful history, there's yes. a common song or like a common thread. Can you talk yeah. more um about that, Tamika? So if you grew up in a Caribbean or Latino household. You know that rum, if whether it's Bacardi or well, Ray and nephew or Apple. Yes, thank you, Ray and nephew. Ray and nephew. Um, you know, Ray and nephew is always the one that everyone's like. But wait, but I see the. I'm I'm looking at the bottle, yeah. and I'm like, what is it? And my grandmother, I remember my grandmother keeping Ray and nephew all the time. She put it in food. She put it in tea. She put it in Malta. She put it in everything. And yeah. so when the bottle was empty, then she would put coconut oil in it. So now we would look at it and be like, okay, so which one is it? And I remember one time we found the rum and not the coconut oil. And that's a different conversation, but it's just, it was a household item. Like it was for flavor. It was for soothing. And I think the one thing we realized as we spoke to a lot of the mixologists is everyone had an affinity for rum. At some point it was mentioned in an interview, a conversation as either being an influence for a cocktail or that being a first experience because it was something that was so rooted in, you know, uh, in our childhood. So that played a part, a role too, I think, in a lot of the cocktails that a lot of the mixologists created. The story behind how they came to use rum as a base usually stems from their childhood experience with it. And then when you think about brands like Equiano who mimic the rum to the, the slave trade to age the rum and then bring it to to market is crazy because and that's something else I didn't realize like s- slaves were in the sugarcane process slaves were helping to bring the rum that you know white I don't want to say colonizers because that's such a like weird slaves word but the colonizers were drinking you know like we were doing all the work yeah so you know it's influential across the board whether it's in your house whether it's in your history, whether it's part of your culture, rum, spirits, all the things, like, it's it's ours. Yeah, rum, whiskey. I mean, who knew that a famous whiskey brand was created by a black man? Mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. as mm. they say, history will always show itself. The truth will and always... What's so funny is... What's so funny is that I listened to the story of how it came to be that happened. And in my mind, I'm like, you know, that is not how that happened. But sure. Like, I appreciate I appreciate wanting to tell the the calm story, but I would rather hear. I wish I was a fly on the wall in the distillery back then, just so I can see how it really played out. I feel like um, 
you're really scratching the surface on such important work. You know, I, I know that for a lot of folks, um, when we say the word cocktails that are not bartenders are, are really not um, part of hospitality in any shape way, might not understand the importance that cocktails and spirits have had throughout history, right? To help formulate history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you both said it so eloquently that, you know, the truth always comes clean at some point, right? So I think you're definitely scratching the surface and through your book, through your good work, more stories, like you said, are going to come out historical stories that are important that we can put in textbooks. And so I believe that your book is um, not just a cocktail book. It it definitely is an important um, historical book that folks, everyone should run out and purchase (laughs) right after you listen to this show. Mm-hmm. And if you have a bar and you do bar trivia, this book is the perfect way to a teach people something and b see how much people actually know. Mm-hmm. Because you can make the cocktails, you can speak to the stories, you can uh, you know engage in good cocktails and conversation at the same time. So right, right. So let me ask you about this. I'll start off with Colin, and you know what's next for you? Such a big question. Yeah. I know. Um, no, it's what's next for me. I'm already doing it. Uh, in my role as I'm the trade director for multicultural and LGBTQ plus advocacy, um, at Bacardi. And our role is really, t- uh, to ensure that, uh, representation happens in every facet of our business, uh, from the vendors we use to the bartenders we talk to and the business owners we help. Um, with that being said, a space and a place I've been playing a lot in and doing a lot of work in is I've been working on the continent. I've been working in Africa, born in Ghana, um, I'm of African descent. And I go back to Ghana and I believe the future is Africa. Actually, let me rephrase that. The future that Africa is now. It's not the future. Africa is now. Um, African culture is really breaking through and is really being embraced uh, by the masses. And with that being said, cocktail culture is growing on the continent. So, yes, I'm going to be spending more time in Ghana, Kenya, and Senegal, Sierra Leone, and South Africa. My mission is that I want to try and help the continent all connect. And I want to spend more time uh, working with the different groups across the continent and connecting them and then showing the rest of the world what amazing things uh, they're doing. There's indigenous spirits that nobody's even heard of yet. In Africa, you could fit Europe, America, China, and still have more space. It's vast. Mm-hmm. It's diverse. It's not a monolith. From region to region, area to area, village to village, there's so much to discover. And I want to be part of that journey of showcasing and highlighting um, all of those beautiful products that we have um, to the rest of the world. So, yeah, that's what's next for me. <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And I can't wait um, to yeah. see what, what you teach us, you know, what you Thank bring you. forth. You know, you said there's a lot that we don't know. I can't wait. I'm so excited. And you're just the man to do it. So what a beautiful thing, Colin. It's really exciting. Tamika, yeah. same question to you. What's next for you? I, my day job allows me to work for a global 
brand. And so for me, it's really focusing on where some synergies are there because there are a few. And so trying to bring this work into other aspects of that, I think is on the radar for me. Also supporting Colin in his next endeavor and Mm -hmm. him potentially traveling around and maybe getting a different side of history and a side of story that a lot of people can't even touch with a 10 foot pole if they tried. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's important for me to take my skill. And while I don't mix cocktails behind the bar, I think using my platform and my pen to help tell the stories or, you know, assist in however that's possible, whether it's connections, whether it's editing, whatever the case, I'm there for that. So um, and I also taste the drinks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> chief taster, chief taster. Yeah, so I'm, I'm free. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, just trying to make sure that the work that needs to be done in the industry in terms of curating Black stories, Black history, Black culture in the mixology industry is is happening. That's my, that's what's next for me. And however we need to do that, we'll get it done, whether it's on screen, whether it's in a book, whether it's a podcast, just trying to figure out ways to A, get more people to tell not only their story, but other stories, but B, helping to make that happen. So I guess that means that we should be expecting more books from you. No pressure, right? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yes, please. 100%. Yes, yes. Yes. You are a brilliant writer. We need yes. to see more, please. Don't worry. We, we, have some, we have some stuff in the can. Yes. Good. Good. Well, <laughs> I, I want to just um, thank you both for coming on Served Up. I would love to invite you both back as we follow your journey. And, you know, I just want to wish you both some great health and a lot of peace. So cheers to you. Cheers to you and happy Black History Month. Thank you, Bridget, for having us on Served Up. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!